I want you to imagine yourself in a courtroom where serious criminal charges are being investigated. A judge sits behind a high desk in his stately robe. He's holding a gavel, ready to strike the desk and call the trial to order. A panel of jurists sits in the room, ready to hear testimony from those bringing the charges and to hear the defense of the one who's been accused. Now imagine this. The one who's sitting in the defendant's chair is you. The charges, these criminal charges, are being levied against you. The jury awaits evidence and testimony that will either condemn you to death or set you free. Only you know in your heart that you're innocent. The charges against you are false. The evidence seems to point in your direction. So in some way it makes sense that people think that you are guilty, but you have a key piece of information, one simple fact that would make all the charges go away immediately if you could simply make it known. If you could convince the jury of this one fact, you would be cleared and this trial would come to an end. And yet there you sit on the defendant's chair. This is the situation that Jesus finds himself in, in today's text, in a way. I invite you to turn to John chapter 5, continuing in our series through John's gospel called Life in His Name. If you're using the Story ESV Bible, those green ones that we provide, it's page 738 where you'll find this text. John chapter 5. Now, this isn't the real trial of Jesus. In fact, that will come later in his life, and we know how that will end. The final trial at the end of his life that will, in fact, send him to the cross. But when it comes to the trial of Jesus in people's minds and hearts, and especially in today's context, the Pharisees and religious leaders who are kind of putting Jesus on trial and putting him to the test. Jesus isn't sweating bullets like you or I probably would be in that situation. If it was me in the defendant's chair, I'd be pretty nervous. Jesus has this confidence and this boldness that, uh, that is beautiful and, uh, and interesting to see. But you see, this is kind of a pre-trial hearing, if you will. What we have in, in this text, the charges are being established, the evidence tested, uh, and the defendant kind of given an opportunity to present his case, if you will. And so the Pharisees have come to Jesus with a charge, and we're going to see Jesus respond to these charges. Now today, we will see the first part of his defense, if you will, um, and then where he's going to make crystal clear uh, the claims that he is making about himself, which are the basis of these charges. And then next week, we'll, when we take up the, the, the next part of Jesus' kind of speech here, uh, we will see that he will call witnesses uh, in his defense to speak to his uh, case and his identity. And then he's actually going to turn the tables on the religious leaders and kind of start accusing them of uh, some things, and the tables turn. And so it gets very interesting but we'll have to do this in two parts because there's a, it's a lengthy speech uh, and we only have so much time. So um, 
the charge you will find in verse 18 of chapter 5. But before we get there, let's walk back very briefly through what brought us here. So Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. Remember, we had seen him in Galilee up to the north where he had healed the son of a court official with those five words, go, your son will live. And, uh, and, and now, he, because of a feast, a religious feast of the Jews, uh, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem down south. And as he entered Jerusalem, last week we saw that he went to uh, the pool of Bethesda, which means the house of mercy, where he found all of these people with various disabilities uh, laying about, waiting for someone to help them and waiting for the kind of stirring of the waters. There was this belief that if when the water stirred, if you were the first one there, you would get healed. And so Jesus found one man there who had been lame for 38 years, and Jesus on the Sabbath day heals him. He says, do you want to be healed? The man explained his situation. Well, every time the water stirs, somebody beats me to the water. And so Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk. And he does. And then the plot thickens because it it told us in verse 9, right after he had healed him, now that day was the Sabbath. So that is going to be the context for the charges brought against Jesus and Jesus' self-defense that we're going to see today is that he is doing these things, that is healing people, doing acts of power on a Sabbath day. And we talked a little bit about how the Jews had corrupted the original intention of Sabbath and added hundreds of regulations uh, that determined what you could and could not do on a Sabbath. And Jesus' very uh, defense, the very brief defense he gave last week, in last week's text, in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working, basically said, you don't say that God can't work on the Sabbath, he can do what he wants. And I'm doing the same thing. So he's basically claiming divine prerogative for himself. I am working because my father is working. And so that brings us to the charge uh, that is brought against Jesus here in verse 18. Look at, the, look at the text here. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That is the charge that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is claiming to be equal with God, which is known as blasphemy. That's the big fancy word. That is the official charge that would come against Jesus. He is a blasphemer because he is calling himself God, making himself equal with God. So that is the charge that is brought against Jesus. And it is the charge that will eventually, about three years from this point in the story, lead him to the cross. But let's look at this charge itself. The charge of blasphemy. You're making yourself equal with God, and this is blasphemy. If the charge is correct, he's liable to death. That is what uh, the old covenant law dictates. One who is guilty of blasphemy is to be put to death. And so just according to the law of the day, If Jesus were, in fact, guilty of blasphemy, he is liable to death, capital punishment, as we would call it. There's really only two possibilities for the charge of blasphemy 
to be incorrect. So there's only two possible responses on Jesus' part that would clear him of the charges, if you will. The first of those two ways would be they just misunderstood him. And he wasn't really claiming to be equal to God. So if he could kind of backtrack and say, oh, no, no, that's, that's not what I meant. You, misun- you took that all the wrong way. I didn't, this is what I meant. I didn't quite mean that I was equal with God. If he could kind of prove that he wasn't claiming to be equal with God, then the charge of blasphemy would, would collapse because, it, well, he wasn't claiming to be equal with God, and so he's not blaspheming. So if, in fact, Jesus just overspoke or misspoke, claimed more than he intended to claim, and in fact is not equal with God, this would be a pretty good time to clear the record, right? To say, oh, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. You've misunderstood me. I'm not really equal with God. He doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to drive the stake of his divine identity even deeper into the ground, which will show us the second way that this charge of blasphemy might be incorrect. The charge of blasphemy could go away if Jesus could prove to them, nope, that's not really what I meant. I was not claiming to be equal with God. Or if his claims of equality with God are, in fact, true. Because if he really is God, the Son, if he really is equal with God, then he's not blaspheming because that would be to say something untrue about God or to put yourself unrightly in a position of divine authority. But if Jesus really is God, if he really is equal with God the Father, then claiming that he is equal with God the Father is not blasphemy, it's just stating the truth. So if he could convince them, I really am the Son of God, I really am equal with God, then the charge of blasphemy falls apart. Well, we certainly do not see Jesus backpedaling. We certainly don't see him correcting misunderstandings. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Instead, he is going to state in clear, unequivocal terms that he is, in fact, equal with God as the only Son of God the Father. And so we come to his defense, beginning in verse 19. And I think what I'd like to do is read for you verses 19 down through verse 30. We'll just read that all together, and then we'll um, pause and kind of back go back and and walk through this portion of his defense, his argument. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all, all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we're going to see Jesus begin to defend himself, so to speak, by simply strengthening his claim to a divine identity, to equality with God. The first way that he does that, the first way that we see that Jesus is equal with the Father is by Jesus expressing his intimate connection with the Father. Jesus has a unique, intimate connection with the Father. He establishes that in verses 19 and 20. The first thing he said there was, I can do nothing of my own accord. He's speaking of himself in the third person. So he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He's speaking, of course, about himself. Now, I want you to observe in that phrase, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, He doesn't say the son doesn't do anything of his own accord. He says the son cannot do anything of his own accord. He doesn't merely abstain from doing things on his own. He is unable to do things on his own, which by itself sounds like he's going the other direction. It sounds like he's saying, no, 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 I'm not really equal with God because I can't do things on my own. But in fact, what he's doing is establishing the unique relationship that he has with God the Father. His relationship with God the Father is such that he is only able to act in meticulous, specific unity with the Father. Nobody else can make that claim. Nobody else can say the only things I do are, are totally in line with and empowered by and, uh, and commissioned by God the Father. Nobody else can make that claim. Jesus is saying, I have a totally unique relationship with God the Father. He says in verse 19, I, see, I do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. I look to where God the Father is at work, and that is what I do. Just like he said up in verse 17, my Father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, where you see the Father working, where you see God at work, you're seeing me at work. I am working in the same ways as my Father is working. In fact, he gives me the job to do, and I do it. So where you see God working, you are seeing me at work. And the Father shows him everything. Look at verse 20. The Father loves the Son 
and shows him all that he himself is doing. You need to highlight there that the relationship of father to son is one of love. God the Father loves God the Son, who we see in the incarnate form of Jesus of Nazareth. The Father loves the Son. Remember back at the beginning of John's Gospel, John laid out for us kind of a a mind-boggling, Trinitarian view of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything that was created was created through this Word, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word of God is the Son of God, the one who came into the world in human form in the person of Jesus. And so you have this unique distinction. There's There's God the Father, and there's the Word, who is God the Son. And then you see more uh, about the Holy Spirit uh, later on. In fact, Jesus will tell his disciples later that when he goes back to heaven, he will send uh, the Comforter, the Spirit, uh, to them, and he will lead them in the way of truth. And so there is this unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And this gets very hard, probably impossible really, for us to totally fully understand. Because we believe in one God. The Bible teaches there is one God, but that one God exists and has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we get a little bit, a glimpse into the the love relationship between Father and Son. From eternity past, before human beings ever existed, before he ever created the world, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit were relating to one another in love, in community. The Father loves the Son, and he shows him all that he is doing. So the Father doesn't keep secrets from the Son. The Father is not at work in certain ways that he isn't letting the Son in on. Jesus knows everything that God the Father is doing. At any given moment, Jesus could see 10,000 things that God was at work doing that we would be totally blind to and might only know in retrospect, oh, wow, look what God did. Have you ever done that in your life? God, I don't know what you're doing. This is crazy. What's happening in my life? And then you get to the other side of that trial or that season, and you look back and you go, wow, look what God did. Look at at all the the ways that we were strengthened, the ways that we depended on God more, the, the healing in these relationships that was so hard. Look at what God did. Jesus is saying, I know what God's up to. I know what God the Father is up to because we are intimately and uniquely connected to each other. He shows me everything that he is doing. And then he says, and he's going to give me greater works than these. He's going to show me even bigger and better stuff than telling a paralyzed guy to get up and walk. I'm going to raise the dead. I'm going to die on a cross and God's going to raise me from the dead. You're going to see even greater things so that you may marvel at me and at God the Father. So the first aspect of Jesus' self-defense is that he has a unique and intimate relationship with God the Father. So he doesn't backpedal at all. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not really, I'm not really equal with God. I, don't, I didn't really want to claim divine identity for myself. He says, there is nobody alive or who has ever lived that has the kind of connection to the Father that I have. I see everything he sees. I know everything he knows. I am at work in all the ways that he is at work. This is not backpedaling. This is driving the stake of his divine identity further into the ground. 
The second way that we see this divine claim that Jesus is saying, I am equal to God, is that life and judgment belong to Jesus. Life and judgment belong to Jesus. Look at verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Life belongs to Jesus, and I can give life to whomever I choose. This reminds me of the words of God to Moses back in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses had said, Lord, show me your glory. Let me see who you are. I need to know more of of your person, of your identity, of your glory, so that I can follow you in this crazy adventure that you're leading me to. And God passes by him in this kind of mysterious way. And here's what he says. He says, I'm going to show you my glory. And then he makes this statement in Exodus 33, 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Which sounds like to me, God is saying what it means to be God is that I can do whatever I want. The nature of divinity is total freedom. God can do anything he wants. Life and mercy are in his hand and he can distribute them as he sees fit. And Jesus says, just as God the Father raises the dead to life, so also the Son can give life to whomever he wants. This is a divine prerogative. This is Jesus saying, I'm just like God the Father in that I have life in my hands and I can give it to whom I choose. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but he has given judgment, all judgment to the son. He has given all judgment to the son. Clearly, God is the judge. He's been seen as holy judge all throughout the Old Testament and well into the New even Abraham approached God as the judge. He called him the judge of all the earth. And at one point he was pleading with God for mercy on the, the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he's appealing to God's holy, righteous character and his, and his mercy and, and his perseverance. And so, so God is clearly the one that's in the position of judge. There's nobody who can stand in that place above all humanity and be the one who dispenses judgment except for God. And Jesus here says, the Father has given all judgment to me, and I dispense justice as I see fit. Another Old Testament passage that I'm reminded of here is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this this vision kind of prophetic vision, and here's one of the things he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is a title for God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man is one who has the right and the authority to judge. And Jesus is the son of man. He calls himself that uh, in many places and ways. He's already called himself that, in fact, in the Gospel of John. He told, uh, I believe it was Andrew and Nathan back in chapter 1, that when he said, you will see angels and descending on the son of man, who's speaking about himself. So he is the fulfillment of that vision of Daniel, this one with the authority to carry out judgment and to have dominion and this everlasting kingdom. So if Jesus says, life is in my hands and I can give it to whom I want, and judgment is in my hands and I dispense justice, is he backpedaling and saying, no, 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 I'm not really, I'm not really God. He's driving that stake of his divine identity further and further into the ground. Jesus is the one with the authority to judge. And in case he hasn't made it clear enough, he's going to take another step further. Look, starting at verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Look at this in verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. In other words, Jesus is to be worshipped as God. If he wants to backpedal and say, nope, I'm not really God, then it doesn't make much sense for him to say, I am to be honored just as God is to be honored. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Honor him how? Honor him as the one with life and judgment in his hand. Honor him as the one with this intimate, unique relationship with God the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. If you don't worship Jesus as the Son of God, you don't worship God the Father. Now, and this is not popular. This excludes any religion or system of belief that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as God. It's just that plain. So Judaism, tragic as that is, Jesus himself was the fulfillment of Judaism, and they rejected him. They don't recognize Jesus as God. They're not worshiping God. They're not worshiping God the Father. Islam, they'll claim that they, they honor Jesus. Oh, yeah, we revere Jesus. We see him as a prophet. We see him as a special guy. But they deny his claims to divinity. They said, no, 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 he's, he's not God. And he didn't really die. He just made it look like he died. That's the kind of things that, that, that Muslims will say about Jesus. Yes, we honor him as a prophet, but we don't believe that he's God. Well, Jesus says, if you don't honor me just as you honor the Father, you're not honoring the Father. If you don't honor and worship the Son, you don't worship God. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had, have you guys ever had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? There, when I lived in Houston, I think I've only had it maybe one time here. But when I lived in Houston, there was this pair of Jehovah's Witnesses that would come to my door repeatedly for a, maybe a six-month period. They came every few weeks. And at some point, they kind of, I think, lost interest in me. But, um, but, but they, and they have their own translation of the Bible, which, by the way, back in John 1, 1, where it says the Word was with God and the Word was God, their translation of the Bible says the Word was a God, lowercase g. 
So they, they, they have their own translation that sort of explains away the stuff that they don't like. And one of the things that they don't like is this claim that Jesus is God. And so I would have, they would ask me something about Jesus, and I'd say, oh, yeah, I, I worship Jesus too. In fact, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'd say, oh, yes, he is the Son of God, just like we're all God's children. And no, 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 that's not what I mean. Jesus is the Son of God in a unique way, and I'd take him to a passage like this one or, or to where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and things like that, and they'd try to stone him and all that. And they'd say, no, 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 I, we don't, I don't think that's what that means. And so we, we'd have these debates, if you will. Uh, about the the divine identity of Jesus. And eventually, like I said, they got tired of, of coming back and having that discussion, I think. Um, but the point is, they don't see Jesus as God. They don't, be- which means they don't believe Jesus' claims about himself because this is pretty clear. He's not really being ambiguous here. Like, what does he mean that he has life and judgment in his hands and that he should be honored just as God the Father? What is- Surely he doesn't really mean that he's that he's God, right? This is pretty clear. So if you deny that Jesus is God, you deny some pretty plain teachings of Scripture and some pretty plain claims that Jesus himself makes. And so this excludes any system of belief or worldview or religion that doesn't recognize Jesus as divine, that doesn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that's not popular because that's exclusive, right? You are saying, nope, that's not good enough. Uh, and it's not that we, we're not making the rules. God makes the rules. God is who he is. God can claim whatever he wants. And if he reveals himself to be a certain way, then as his creatures, we're not in a position to pass judgment on him, which is what the Pharisees are trying to do here. How can you claim to be equal with God? Well, that's not your prerogative. That's not your position. You're a creature. He's your creator. Our our job, our position is simply to see what he has revealed himself to be and to recognize him and to honor him as God. So he just keeps on digging in his heels, keeps on driving that stake farther and farther into the ground. I have an intimate, unique connection to God the Father. Everything he's doing, I'm doing. Everything he sees, I see. He has life and judgment in his hands. Life is mine to give. Judgment is mine to dispense. This is my prerogative. And then if it's not far enough, he is to be worshiped as God. Just as you honor the Father, you must honor me. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Well, his speech continues, and there's some results, if you will. There's there's an upshot to to his claims about himself. There's good news and there's bad news. We'll start with the good news because Jesus does. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. That doesn't, he doesn't say, will have eternal life. Someday there's an eternal life that will be available. He says, whoever believes now has now eternal life, which means eternal life has already started. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they, the sheep, 
might have life and have it more abundantly. He's interested in your life today, not just your life years from now after you've died and, and gone into an afterlife. He's interested in life now. He has secured life now. I'm reminded of a Switchfoot song called The Afterlife where he says, I wonder why would I wait till I die to come alive? I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. It's a pretty cool song. You should check it out. There is life available right now. For the one who trusts Jesus, there is life and abundant life. There is hope. There is peace. There is strength. There is joy. There is healing for brokenness and and, and a future. All these, these things that impact how we live and how we see the world and how we relate to others and how we relate to God right now. If you trust Christ, that life is available, not just some point in the future after you die, but right now. So here's the things that happen to those who hear and believe. He has eternal life. Anyone who hears and believes, look at this, will not come into judgment. See that? In the middle of verse 24, he does not come into judgment. So this judgment that's coming, I think it's similar to the judgment that he warned the the formerly paralyzed man about back in verse 14, where he found him in the temple, and he said, see, you are well. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse might happen to you. And I think the worst that he's talking about is this future final judgment where Jesus himself, as the judge, the dispenser of justice, will reward or condemn each person. We'll get to that in a second. But if you hear and believe, you hear his words and you believe him who sent me, that is God the Father, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and you trusted in him, you will not come into judgment. That's good news. Anyone who hears and believes has passed from death to life. Has passed from death to life. That's one of the most beautiful just short phrases and some summary statements of the good news of the gospel. Because of who Jesus is, because of his life and death and resurrection, if we will simply place our faith in him and rest on what he has done and who he is, we can pass from death to life. There is a a real spiritual transaction, a transferal, a transformation that takes place when you place your faith in Jesus. Death to life. Dark to light. I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Colossians 1.13 where he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are transferred from one kingdom to another. When you place your faith in Jesus, there is an invisible spiritual reality of your life being removed from the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Christ. You have passed from death to life. Have you had that experience? Has that happened in your life? Have you placed your faith in Christ and seen your life and your status and your position and your eternity change, transfer from death to life? Truly, truly, verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God 
and those who hear will live. And I think he's talking here about spiritually dead people because he says the hour's coming and is here now, meaning because I'm here. Jesus says, I'm here and that moment is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I think he's saying that if you will listen to me, if you will receive the message that I bring, if you will recognize me as the Son of God, and if you will receive for yourself my life and death and resurrection in your place, you will live. And that's what hearing means. He says they'll hear the voice of the Son of God, and whoever will hear will live. I think what he means is to hear is to receive. Just like he said back in chapter 1, verse 12, those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus has life in himself because of who he is. Just like back in John 1, 4, the Son uh, in him, or the, the Word of God in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the good news is that if you hear and believe, anyone who hears and believes, you have eternal life starting now. You will not come into judgment. You pass from death to life, and you will live. You'll have life forever. That's the good news. Who recognize Jesus' claims about himself and accept him by faith, those things can be true. Here's the bad news. Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. Look at verse 27. And he, that is the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Remember that passage from Daniel where the Son of Man was approached the ancient of days and was given this kingdom and the keys to judge? He's the Son of Man, and so he has the authority to judge. And here we go in verse 28. There's a resurrection coming. One day you will die and rise. There you will be raised, no matter what. Look at this. Verse 29. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this sounds at first like kind of a works-based salvation. Like, like Jesus is saying, if you're good enough, you'll live. And if you're too bad, then you get judged. But that would be a misunderstanding of this statement because it's out of sync with everything that Jesus himself has already said in John's gospel about how to uh, receive life. Back in 112, whoever receives him, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36 said, whoever believes in the, in the Son of God has eternal life. Uh, and even back in verses 24 and 25 that we just read of this chapter, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hear and believe. That's all it takes. That's what, that's what Jesus has been saying all along. That's what John is telling us. That's what the New Testament tells us throughout. It's, tr it's simple faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ and so that's why Paul says, how will they 
call upon him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches it? Right? So there's this kind of missionary call to the church to go and preach the gospel because that's how people get saved. They hear it and they believe it and they're saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's all it takes. There's not this list of requirements, right? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and go to church enough times and give enough money to the poor, treat your neighbor well enough, right? If you store up enough good deeds, then maybe you can make it. I had, we had uh, neighbors in, in Houston that were Muslims. They were dear people. They, they became good friends of ours. And we went over for dinner a lot of times and had lots of conversations about our respective beliefs and faiths and how they differ from one another. And, and I, I will never forget my neighbor explaining his belief in terms of a sort of eternal bank account. He said, I think I have a good deeds bank account. And my hope is that when I get to the end of my life, that I will have enough good deeds stored up in my bank account that God will say, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You can come in. That's a hard way to live. That's a hard not very hopeful way to live. Like, I just, I'm hoping I do good enough. Because how do you know? How do you know if your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds? How do you know how to weigh good deeds versus bad deeds? Well, I did something nice, but I had this really kind of mean thought while I did it. So that kind of a good deed or a bad deed? How do you have any idea? Well, the whole point is, the whole beauty of the gospel is that that is removed. Because it's not about how many good deeds or bad deeds you did. It's about did you hear and believe in the Son of God? Have you trusted in the name of the only Savior? Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So whoever trusts him, whoever says, I don't have it in me, I don't have what it takes to be saved, I can't get right with God, so Jesus, I'm with you. Jesus, I'm just leaning on you. That's it. That's all it takes to be saved. That's all it takes for a relationship with God. So he's not saying here, if you do enough good stuff, you get saved, and if you do enough too much bad stuff, then you get judged. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is that good works are the fruit of true faith. Belief in Christ yields good works. It yields fruit, like in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10, where Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And then he says, for you were prepared... Not right. You were cre- you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So you're saved by grace through faith, period. And God has good works ready for you to do. So when you come to faith in Christ, that faith yields these good works that God is, is leading you to and calling you to. It ain't the good works that he's prepared for you that get you the relationship with God. It's the relationship with God that empowers the good works that he's created you to do. It's like James saying in, in chapter 2, 26, that faith without works is dead. So the, the picture, the teaching of the New Testament throughout is that good works are produced by faith. They don't produce faith. Faith produces works. So I think what Jesus is saying is the one who does good is the one who has believed in Jesus is trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for his salvation, and as a result of that faith, is living a life that produces godly fruit. 
So does good means trusts Christ and his faith is producing fruit. So the one who does evil is therefore the one who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, the one who's rejected him, refused him, therefore lives in an ongoing state of unrepentant sin and rebellion against God. And as John 3.36 says, the wrath of God remains on him, which is a terrifying place to be because Jesus has the authority to judge. And one day you're going to rise from the dead and you're either going to be raised to life because you've trusted Christ and rested on him and said, I don't have it. I don't have the good stuff that it takes. Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. I trust you. I believe in who you are. Believe in what you did for me. Or you're going to be raised to judgment, to separation, to punishment. And we can be confident, look at verse 30, that Jesus always judges rightly. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. That is, as I hear from the Father, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So again, pointing back to that intimate relationship that Jesus has with God the Father. I see what he sees. I know what he knows. I want what he wants. And because of that, you can be certain that my judgment will always be just. Which means you're not going to escape the judgment of Christ unless you're hiding in his mercy. You will not escape the judgment that Jesus will dispense for your sins and rebellion against God unless you have run to Jesus and his cross and laid that sin and rebellion at his feet and said, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me. So Jesus is on trial here. And I think the implicit question that's there for these Pharisees and these religious leaders that are kind of bringing this charge. Who do you think you are? You claim to be God. I think the question kind of emerges from this text. What do you, what do you say about this? Jesus makes these claims. I'm intimately connected to the Father. I have life and judgment in my hand. And I am going to give life as I see fit and I should be worshipped as God. So what do you, what do you say? So I think each of us has to answer that question. What do you say? Because remember, John wrote this gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That's the very purpose for which he wrote. And God inspired the Apostle John to write this gospel because God wants you to believe. God wants you to choose life. He's holding it out. Life and judgment are in Jesus' hands, and he is mercifully warning us here. Don't be like the wicked who refuse to recognize the divine power and authority of Jesus, who refuse to bow their hearts and yield their lives to him, who reject the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and who gave his life for sinners and rose from the dead. Because if you refuse him, if you reject him, if you deny him, you will one day be raised from the dead to be cast into hell forever. That's not good news. Don't let that be your story. If you want to have the assurance that the coming resurrection will result in life for you, 
If you want the joy and the fullness of experiencing eternal life now in this present age, if you want to know with confidence that you have passed from death to life, then just bow your heart to him. Yield your life to Jesus Christ in whose hand are both life and judgment. Believe that he is the Christ, the one sent from God. And he is the very son of God who took up your sins and carried them to a cross 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem and paid for them himself. Who defeated death and hell by rising from the grave, assuring all those who believe that one day they too will rise from the dead and rise to life everlasting in his presence. Just trust him. Just call out to him. Just bow your heart to him and welcome him into your life. That's it. That's all it takes. And let's continually be bowing our lives and hearts and yielding to his authority to give life and execute judgment and so experience the life that he came to bring.